0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to my fellow host, Rachel Pagonas. Rachel is former department chair of the Transitional Doctorate of Acupuncture in Chinese Medicine at Pacific College of Health and Science in San Diego. She is a licensed acupuncturist, and she is also the author of the new book, Acupuncture is Revolution, Suffering, Liberation, and Love, published in 2021 by Brevis Press.
1: Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. It's nice to be on the other end of the monitor. <laughs>
0: uh, well, I wonder if you could begin our interview then by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. So, as you said, I am an acupuncturist. That's not actually my first career. It's, in fact, it's my third, and I hope last. Uh, but before I was an acupuncturist, I was a journalist. So I think that's where I, and and it's not the first book I've published, but I think when I find a topic that I am really intrigued by, I'm kind of like a dog with a bone and I I leap onto it and won't let go of it. And so that's what happened with this book. Tell us
0: how you became obsessed with the topic of this book.
1: Yeah, well, interestingly, it was, I was, it was, (laughs) through something that might otherwise be seen as a failure. So I had, as I said, acupuncture is not my first career. So um, I'd been a journalist in England and um, my family moved back to the United States, to California, and it was at the sort of the depths of the Great Recession. And so not a good time to be a a re-employed journalist. So I decided to do something I'd always wanted to do, which was study acupuncture. So did that. Um, And then I, I did a doctorate in acupuncture at Yosan University of Traditional Chinese Medicine in LA. And I did that because I wanted to do acupuncture research. That was really my passion. I wanted to do research in acupuncture. And so I was interviewing for a fellowship I'd applied for, a research fellowship with the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine at University of San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco. And It was a very long interview went went on i was interviewed by many different people over the course of several months and during one of those interviews uh, the person who was interviewing me who was you know had an mph and was a researcher at this point and uh, uh, involved in public health but she mentioned that she had had her acupuncture education because she trained as an acupuncturist in the early 1980s at this place first world acupuncture that was quite radical, very different than anything I had heard about in acupuncture education. And the way she described it just really caught my interest. And I said, oh, tell me more about that. So she told me a little more about it. And I remember as I hung up the phone, and it wasn't like a premonition or a pledge I made to myself or anything, but I just thought, huh, well, I may not get this research fellowship, which by the way, I didn't. But um, maybe what, but if that doesn't happen, what will come out of this is that I'll write a book about this. Uh, and so that is what happened.:
0: Well, before we get into the book, um, can can you give us a just answer a very basic background question, yeah.
1: and that is um, what is acupuncture? Well, acupuncture is part of Chinese medicine, and Chinese medicine also includes herbal medicine and a form of massage called Twina and cupping, which a lot of people have heard of. And acupuncture actually includes something else, moxibustion, which is the burning of a particular herb, mugwort, which can be used with or without needles to enhance the effect. So that is, clinically speaking, what is acupuncture? It's it's a, a kind of health care, and that's how it's practiced. But philosophically and culturally, it's a much greater thing. So it's, as I said, part of Chinese medicine, sometimes known as traditional Chinese medicine, and it involves a a body of thought and a world understanding, which is very different than the biomedical scientific understanding of how the body works, how the health works, how the world works indeed. And there are a lot of influences on Chinese medicine, but among them there is Taoism and Confucianism are, are very important aspects. So it's really not only a way of treating health and preventive medicine, but it's also a way of understanding our relationship to the rest of the natural world.
0: And how is acupuncture practiced in the United States today? In other words, if I wanted to practice acupuncture, how would I go about doing that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So you would go to an acupuncture college and you would get a a master's degree. Typically, there's one acupuncture college that offers a certificate instead, but I'll get into that later. But you would study for about four years and get a master's degree. And then you would have to, depending what state you were in, you would have to pass different exams to get your license. So that's why acupuncturists will always say, I'm a licensed acupuncturist. And you know, if you're a medical doctor, you don't say I'm a licensed medical doctor, but that means that you've passed the exams. And so once that occurs, you can practice in a lot of different ways and people can access, consumers can find acupuncture in a lot of different ways. There is the sort of boutique model where you go, and I think this is what a lot of people think of is you go, you meet someone, they're your acupuncturist, maybe they've got some waterfalls in their office, and nice pictures on the walls, and soothing music playing, and you see them for an hour in this little room, and, uh, but, so that's one model. Uh, There's also acupuncture in hospitals, which is becoming much greater as the integrative medicine movement sort of expands, so, and particularly with oncology hospitals. Uh, There's a branch of acupuncture, oncology acupuncture, that uses acupuncture a lot, not to treat cancer, but to alleviate side effects of cancer treatment. And so that, so there's a lot of acupunctures that actually work in healthcare centers and hospitals. And then there's community acupuncture, which is in a big room. There's no divisions, no separate area. Uh, people are lying back in reclining chairs and having points needled. They don't take their clothes off at all. Uh, usually points are needled on the extremities or the head, maybe the face. And so that's a, another way of doing it. So, um, and it can be very expensive, it can be inexpensive. And there's also acupuncture used for addiction, which I talk about in this in this book and, and for trauma and even taken to places of trauma, such as uh, the site of wildfires in California, let's say. Uh, and then they use a type of, of ac- needles that just go in the ear and people can sit there and have needles in their ear. So and that is to address particularly emotional residue.
0: So did you um did you write Acupuncture's Revolution for your fellow acupuncturists who did you see as the the audience for this book primarily?
1: Yeah, I think uh, in the book I say it's it's for clinicians and researchers and academics in the integrative medicine fields and and public health and and also definitely for acupuncturists and not only existing acupuncturists practicing acupuncturists, but I think the acupuncturists, people who are in college right now studying acupuncture. And I think, as I say, at the end of the introduction, it is to inspire them that theirs is a medicine for everyone. Ours is a medicine for everyone. Uh, And that among its humblest uses to serve those with the least resources, that is also one of its greatest achievements.
0: How has acupuncture been studied scientifically?
1: Hmm. How do we know it works? <laughs> well, it's been studied a lot, and it's been studied in many different ways. So interesting thing, uh, gosh, I could go into a really long, drawn-out thing through the history of uh, acupuncture in 20th century China and a process that they called the scientization of acupuncture. But just to jump more into the more recent era, there has been a lo- three kinds of research involving acupuncture, basically. And the first one is basic science. And the point of basic science is to understand what is the acupuncture mechanism or mechanisms? How does it work? You know, what changes physiologically when you insert a needle that makes it have an effect on the body? So what we found from that is that, in fact, there are a number of different mechanisms. And probably the one that people know about the most, cause it was the, the first research that was particularly involved with, with rodents that came out was uh, endogenous opiates, opioids. So that's one way these neurotransmitters involved, there are a number of other ways. So we know some mechanisms through which it works. Then there is efficacy research, which is let's compare acupuncture to a placebo as if it were a drug and see how well does it perform against a placebo and then there's effectiveness research which is looking at acupuncture compared to something else and in a clinical situation saying well how well does it work in a clinical situation and that could be compared to nothing or it could be compared to some other modality like yoga and all of these things have given evidence that acupuncture works i would say it's the evidence is not unequivocal because there's and there's all kinds of research so what you really need to do is and this is what i used to teach at the pacific college of health and science Uh, i taught acupuncturists how to evaluate the acupuncture literature that's out there so you need to look at things like well what kind of a placebo was used and you know sometimes the difference between the placebo acupuncture and the real acupuncture will be minimal and so what, what sort of a placebo was used, or what was the control group like, or how frequently did they give the acupuncture? Did they have a, a follow-up period where they looked afterwards to see how large were the groups that were studied? Who was performing the acupuncture? There's all kinds of questions that go into, was this high quality research or not? And so a lot of that has to do with the evidence as well. But we do know for sure that it outperforms sham. We do know that it outperforms doing nothing and we do know that it significantly outperforms what's known as um well let's say that it significantly outperforms what's known as usual care which is what else the person would be doing instead which is big because um that's often what's recommended by doctors is you know take some otc medication or have this kind of exercise or you know have doctor's appointments and we know that acupuncture does better, particularly. I should say, a lot of the research has been to do with pain because that's easier to study.
0: Sure. Well, and you get into the the literature and the chapter on scientization, but the rest of the book um, it really um, covers three revolutionary movements in acupuncture, and you call these um, revolutionary detox acupuncture, first world acupuncture, and liberation acupuncture. Um, Tell us about each of these movements.
1: Yeah, so the first two are very closely linked. And I, I will say this this is my thesis, right? I made these things up, to, so it's not, it's not some objective thing out there, but this is how I see it. And so the first revolutionary acupuncture movement, um, and I call it revolutionary detox acupuncture because it was used primarily to help people who were addicted to heroin or methadone to get off of those addictions. Uh, and as applied to an individual, that would be called detox. So, and this came out of, this began around 1970 in the South Bronx of New York at a hospital called Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. And conditions both in the South Bronx and at Lincoln Hospital were quite awful at that time for, for various reasons. Lincoln Hospital was the only municipal hospital in the South Bronx, and it it was just very, very inadequate. I mean, it was known as the butcher shop by generations of of people who had been there. There was a terrible problem of heroin addiction in the South Bronx, but, and this was a time of many leftist uh, political movements As you know, probably most people know that the 1960s going into the 1970s, there were, there was a lot of leftist political activism. um, And what was known as the new left the loose amalgamation of these movements was known as the new left and particularly surrounding lincoln hospital you had people groups um such as the black panthers and the young lords were very active there other groups there was one called the health revolutionary unity movement or HRUM, and another one called think lincoln and they were all allied with working with each other and with working at lincoln hospital to improve conditions there so uh, but, but within the new left, there was a real—it was a, there was a lot of participatory, participatory democracy and direct action. So, one of the forms of direct action they took, some of these groups uh, led by the young lords initially, was to take over, occupy the hospital, really move in and occupy the hospital, and they did this twice in 1970, uh, first in the summer and then again in November, and what they demanded, particularly after the second occupation, they even began treating people for heroin detox right then and there. And at this point, they were not using acupuncture. They didn't know about acupuncture, really. They were just interested in in getting people in the community off of heroin and methadone. So they demanded this program and eventually they did get some money. The hospital got a significant amount of money to begin a program. And within two years, they had discovered acupuncture largely through uh, connections to maoism actually it was a couple things happening it was there there was uh the counterculture was going on and nixon opened relations with china in 1972 and there was this great interest in what's going on in china and so just as far as the broader public was concerned there was knowledge about acupuncture that came through there was knowledge about something called the barefoot doctors who were part of the revolution and part of um, the communist, Chinese Communist Party's redoing of healthcare, so as to reach out to the rural communities that had had virtually no healthcare, no public health. and The barefoot doctors were young people who were trained in basic techniques of biomedicine and Chinese medicine and they weren't barefoot they actually wore shoes but they were they were classified as peasants and the peasants often did work barefoot in the fields and they were very very effective actually in in bringing healthcare treating uh these peasant populations that just hadn't had access to good care and they they were just as likely to use a stethoscope and antibiotics as they were to use a chinese pulse diagnosis and and brew up herbal formulas but they used both and so the people uh all of the people who got involved in, in revolutionary detox acupuncture, maybe I shouldn't say all, but but most of them were involved with some other leftist political movements. And so within revolutionary detox acupuncture, they were using acupuncture to treat heroin addiction, methadone addiction, because methadone at that time was the recommended treatment for heroin addiction. You, you get people addicted to methadone, which is another opiate to get them off of heroin. And there were inherent problems in that, one of which is you continue to have people be addicted. Uh, but, in, and then to go get their methadone, they had to comply with certain social demands. And some people, for instance, were refused their methadone if they were wearing a pin or a t-shirt or a hat that advertised some revolutionary political movement or uh, and you know there were even allegations that people would show up for their methadone and be arrested or they would um they would be only be given their methadone if they would sort of tell what other people were involved in political activity so there's a lot of social control going on there so that's what they were doing and they saw acupuncture as uh, yes they they read some scientific articles and which showed that acupuncture had been used in Hong Kong in particular, uh, inadvertently had been found that it it's lessened the cravings of people who are addicted to opium. But equally importantly, they were doing what they call political education. So the people who were coming for treatment to Lincoln Hospital, people from the community who were struggling with addiction, were also given political educations. They were, they were reading books together. They were reading Uh, Mao Zedong's Little Bread Book. They were reading Che Guevara. They were reading Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. They were reading a book by J.S. Horn called Away with All Pests, which is a line from one of uh, Mao Zedong's poems. And he was a British physician, a a communist who had gone to China, and he was very keen on what they were doing with healthcare there and came and spoke to Americans, uh, American scientists and doctors, also so so they were learning about all this and another thing they did was uh, take people in vans so they would take the the patients the clients who were being treated and and they would get some vans together and take them to the trials of political prisoners and the whole idea was was this is part of liberation of oppressed people so it wasn't just treating acupuncture treating people with acupuncture for an individual condition addiction But it was seeing addiction as an illness coming from a very unjust society and using acupuncture as, because we know that acupuncture, this is how acupuncture is often understood, that it engenders the body's own ability to heal itself. And so you can do that within an individual person. And you can also do that within a community, uh, engendering people's empowering people to know that they can heal themselves, even if the origins of their condition comes from outside of them. So that is very different than just using acupuncture to, um, heal an, an individual condition. And that's what revolutionary detox acupuncture was about. So this program began at Lincoln hospital and, uh, there was a, a lot of still political involvement there was a, a lot of people who were involved in it had come from, some of them had been prisoners, political, but some of them had been in jail for uh, drug-related causes. Some of them had been in jail for political causes. You know, they'd all been released. And so there was, you know, this aspect of, okay, people who had been in prison, people who had been incarcerated, there were people who had been members of street gangs. There was a lot of fomenting from, Right wing movements as well as left wing movements, both of whom were not happy with the way things were being done. For you know, there was just a, this was a very unrestful time, and so eventually the acupuncture kind of split into two groups one led by a, a medical doctor named Dr. Michael Smith, who was working more within the system, and then the other led by someone called Mutulu Shakur, who was more interested in the revolutionary side of it and those people those more politically revolutionary people ended up getting kicked out of lincoln hospital in 1978. they started their own acupuncture college they'd actually started it even before they got kicked out but they formalized it more they had their own college and clinic Uh, but that was that was raided and shut down by the fbi in 1982. really crushed. The whole movement was crushed. And which I could go into that more later if you like, but let's just suffice it to say for now, that movement was crushed. And so, you know, it ceased to be. So moving on to the next movement, first world acupuncture. This were some people who had been part of that earlier movement, revolutionary detox acupuncture, who were not in prison, they were, you know, they were still free. They, I won't say they were unaffected by everything that had happened, but they were out there and they wanted to carry on the vision. So they began a new acupuncture college and clinic. And by the way, these were both in Harlem. So this was in Harlem and they had, they had to cease with any overt form of political activity because they just couldn't have continued to exist. Everybody was still scared of the FBI. And something called the Joint Terrorist Task Force, but their vision was to provide acupuncture training and acupuncture treatment to Black and Brown communities in Harlem, particularly uh, Black and Latinx people, to give those people the opportunity to learn acupuncture and Chinese medicine, and to be to benefit from it as well. And to me, the most possibly revolutionary thing about them was their college, which had a traditional acupuncturist in service to the community degree, which I think is the greatest kind of degree for an acupuncturist to have. And it's never been a degree that I know of since. You know, that was the only college to offer that degree. So it just had this real different vision for how acupuncture education should take place and how care should be provided and, and and who it should be for, which is, of course, much more inclusive than the, the sort of idea that it's these middle-class, higher-end white people who have it. And I should add that at this time, acupuncture education was just beginning to take place in the United States. Uh, all of these different acupuncture colleges were forming, and most of them were forming along with different influences, I would say, different lines. So that was the first two. And, and first world acupuncture was only around for a couple of years, really. Uh, nothing so dramatic happened. You know, there were no raids. Nobody shut them down. But it was just, by this time, people had been very young when it started. They were getting a bit older. They were having families. They were going back into education. They, they were getting stressed out by the uh, all of the events that had taken place. And so it just kind of folded quietly. And that might have been the end of that. But actually, a lot of those people, most of them who trained there, wasn't a large college, uh, neither was the other college. But the people who had been there continued to go out in their own communities and working, really, as one of them said to me, in the ground, in the dirt, in the let's do this, not working for their own you know, sort of renown or benefit or even financial gain very much, uh, just providing acupuncture to communities in a great deal of need that would never have had this sort of opportunity otherwise, uh, might've been in fact quite marginalized or alienated by it. So there was that. And then uh, we have the third revolutionary acupuncture movement is liberation acupuncture which is the philosophy and the movement embodied in the people's organization of community acupuncture, which is based in uh, Portland, Oregon. And they began around 2011, liberation acupuncture began forming around 2011, continues to this day, and it's a growing movement. And community acupuncture, as I had been describing before, it's just logistically what happens is people are in, uh, these common rooms, and usually they use these comfy reclining chairs, and they needle these points on the extremities or the head, so not necessarily all the points that might be used in a, a more traditional type of acupuncture treatment. But more importantly, they they also have a, a social vision and mission. And what they share in common, they didn't, by the way, they they didn't even really know about these earlier acupuncture movements, when community acupuncture first began, and it was begun by a woman called Lisa Roeliter and her partner Skip Van Meter, who were licensed acupuncturists in Portland. And they were just feeling their way. What did they want to do with acupuncture? They've been working in public health programs with little funding and trying to do some individual acupuncture and, you know, not really getting things off the ground, and what they really wanted to do was reach out to the people who couldn't afford acupuncture, who were marginalized, who didn't have anybody else to help them. And they sort of hit on this model of community acupuncture. And while they were doing that, they discovered some of this other history as well, so we're quite inspired by it. Uh, And they were also inspired by liberation theology and uh, liberation philosophy. So there was a lot of liberation involved, yeah. Um, And and so what they have in common with those other groups is they all have this very, the centrality of the idea that healthcare is a human right, that disease can only be understood in the context of socioeconomic forces. Uh, They prioritize the needs of people who have been oppressed or exploited or traumatized by society in some way. They're motivated by this fundamental disagreement with the racial and social inequities involved in that. And they do see acupuncture as a means to promote and engender social change, although they're not doing political education. Uh, But they do actually do a lot of, you know, a a lot of other sorts of education. So, yeah. So those are the three acupuncture, revolutionary acupuncture movements, as I see it. And um, are,
0: are there any really important distinctions between them that you would like to make?
1: Well... Uh, between revolutionary detox acupuncture and first world i would say just that first world abandoned the overt political activities and certainly people still had people who were at the college all had a you know political convictions and were committed in certain ways but but everybody who had been there as a student or faculty who who i spoke to kind of said the same thing while they they held these political views, but they never talked about them there. And so that was, you know, I think that's the main difference there. As far as liberation acupuncture, of course, these, these are very different times than it was in the 1970s. So things are a lot less volatile. They're not trying to overthrow the existing society or, or begin a communist revolution or socialist revolution, but they do believe that sort of treatment by treatment, person by person, they can engender social change. So the means is maybe a lot more quiet than it was before. What do you think um, is the legacy of acupuncture as,
0: as revolution? Is, is um, liberation acupuncture, is that, is that it? Is this the living legacy? Yeah, no,
1: I don't think that's the only legacy. I think uh, it the legacy is what I would call social justice acupuncture, and there's a lot of. Well, let's see. How can I explain this? Um, Well, just briefly, there's so there's I was describing there's different ways that someone may access acupuncture as a consumer. And you may just get it as a medical treatment. Your insurance company might pay for it. Your doctor might say, oh, I'm referring you for acupuncture for your neck pain because you had this whiplash injury. So there's very straightforward ways you could get acupuncture. But um, there's a number of people also and and organizations as well that have formed that use acupuncture as a a means of pursuing social justice or engaging with social justice. And I think that has all come out of of this. And first of all, uh, something called NADA Uh, I mentioned Dr. Michael Smith, who was involved with the program, not from the very beginning. He came in actually when uh, one of the earlier directors of the program was found dead, presumably murdered in a closet in the hospital. Uh, And they had to have a medical doctor in charge of the program. So uh, Michael Smith had been working. He was also had some political involvement. He'd worked with the Black Panthers in San Francisco. Uh, he, when he was a young man, he was from California. And he was working with another group in New York, an anti-addiction group called White Lightning that was primarily associated with uh, white lower class and working class people in New York uh, who were white, who were struggling with d- drug addiction. So he was a psychiatrist at Lincoln Hospital and he began working with them a couple years into the program. And he was particularly interested in this particular protocol using, which they'd all been working with, by the way, putting needles in the ear in a specific way to treat addiction. And so they were all working on further developing this. But after the two groups kind of split up, Michael Smith and the people who were working with him, his group, they continued to refine and particularly to promote and disseminate this style, which became known as NADA, and so a lot of people both within and without acupuncture, but people who work in addiction know what NADA is. And it's this protocol for putting needles in the ear, which uh, eases cravings and, and also, is also used for trauma. And NADA also stands for something, NADA was just the name they gave to it, but NADA is also an organization, um, let me see if I get this right, National Acupuncture Detoxification Association which basically exists for the same purpose, to promote and disseminate this style of acupuncture, this protocol for the purposes of helping people with addiction. And it's been, uh, NADA has been required by drug courts, in, uh historically in many instances for people, well, rather than go to jail, they can receive this NADA treatment. Uh, NADA also has training sessions for people who are not acupuncturists because you don't necessarily need to have the whole four years to learn how to put needles in the ear. So uh, they also have training courses and people use it. And it's also been picked up as by other groups. There's a group called acupuncturists without borders. And they go to the sites of trauma and work with people there. And they do this ear acupuncture because it's you know you're out in a field somewhere you don't want to tell people to lie down and take off their shirts, so you can have them sitting in chairs and put needles in the ear everybody's all together so there's a, a sense of communal support and they work acupunctures without borders also known as awb they work for instance i i mentioned with people who've been through wildfires in california but also the firefighters they this is just in california but there are other places as well they also go across the border to Tijuana and work with migrant groups and in San Diego with migrant groups. So that's another way of using it. They have training sessions. Uh, there's another group called, um, Salud y Acupuntura para el Pueblo, which is based in Puerto Rico. And they use that style of acupuncture to treat, they were treating people after hurricane Maria, for instance. And they are very much inspired by the revolutionary detox acupuncture movement. And there are many others too, um, actually around the world. It's not just in the United States. So that's social justice acupuncture. And I think that has really come out of, of this. And they all, at this point, sort of hark back to revolutionary acupuncture. And, and I should add, this history has been very little known or not known. And, and when people talk about NADA and using acupuncture for addiction, they've always the name that's always come up is Dr. Michael Smith, Dr. Michael Smith. And he was very, a key person in that, but it's very important to recognize that when it first started, it it wasn't just him. In fact, he wasn't even there at the very beginning. And much of that movement was led by people who were people of color, people from the community, many people who had been struggling with addiction themselves. And all of them sacrificed a lot for it. And and so did Michael Smith, by the way, he was, while he worked within the system, he fought with the system mightily the whole time, but still he was good at working within the system. Whereas uh, the other people were fighting the system from the outside, which is always harder, I think. So that's part of, and, and another part of the legacy, I think a lot of people are now taking inspiration. I would add that since the death of George Floyd, There's been a lot of sort of uh, looking and looking at ourselves within not only the acupuncture community, within integrative medicine as well, looking at uh, our own involvement with racism, for instance, and with Orientalism, and how have we been not recognizing that and so, even within the organization of NADA, they're having some upheaval themselves at this time, I believe. But, but they've been looking back at our history and how can we re-understand it to to bring into our history those other people, um, those those black and brown people. Not to mention that, of course, uh, I haven't even. I mean, my book doesn't really go into the history of of Chinese immigrants who brought acupuncture and Chinese medicine to the country. That's another story altogether but I think so part of the legacy is just re-examining the history re-understanding the history and realizing that there's a lot more to it and it, it may have not necessarily been told by the right people or told fully well Rachel um
0: that that almost answers my my next to last question which was um how do you think it sh- how do you think it how do you think this history should be told and how should it be learned if if you're saying people in the field are beginning to grapple with it now
1: hmm.
0: what would you like them to come away from your book knowing
1: well very simply i would like them to know that this history exists i would like them to know you know something that i haven't really touched on is acupuncture education in North America. And really, I can only speak to the United States because I I understand it's even different in Canada, but Canada also has, uh, POCA is also in Canada, and they also are, are trying to institute community acupuncture there. And in fact, there's a link with Canada because... Uh, The revolutionary detox acupuncturists, when they began their acupuncture college, they were only able to do so through a link that they had with two acupuncturists from Canada, um, Mario and Oscar Wexu. So Mario was the son, Oscar was the father. They were quite revolutionary in their own way. They also fought with the system. But uh, interestingly enough, they were um, French Canadians of, of Romanian extraction, I believe. And so that was, that was where these uh, revolutionary detox acupuncturists got their degrees through this um, college, acupuncture college in Canada. But anyway, how acupuncture education is in the United States is it teaches, most of the colleges teach something called traditional Chinese medicine, which is a, I would call it a streamlined version of Chinese medicine that was developed under Mao in the communist era and there's sort of a a single narrative that you learn and one one of the narratives is that yes there's auricular acupuncture there's not a it's very important was developed by Dr. Michael Smith and that's what people know and you're also taught that acupuncture is something that is eh, I can only say, I mean, this is not something overtly people don't come out and say to you, well, this is for middle-class white people, but that's pretty much the message that you get, because part of the message that, and even that you are overtly taught is you need to make money at this. How do you do this? You need to charge high prices. You need to find a clientele that is a fairly high-end clientele and that can, you know, support you in earning a living. And so Lisa Rolleder who founded community acupuncture and, and the people's organization of community acupuncture. Her it's interesting in the book I call her quietly charismatic and she is kind of you know she'd be sort of not the person standing up and yelling in the room certainly not the person standing up and yelling at people but she's got no pro- she's very prolific writer very articulate writer and She's got no problem with, you know, kind of standing up and yelling at people through her writing, and uh, which is often at the, the educational community. In fact, Polka has a, a sort of a blog called Prick, Prod, and Provoke. And, you know, that's what, that's what she's been doing to the mainstream North American education. Uh, they started a college, uh, Lisa Roller and Skip Van Meter started a college, Polka Tech, and that's the college I mentioned that doesn't offer a degree. They offer a certificate and they see acupuncture as one of the criticisms. I'll just mention a couple criticisms of acupuncture education. One is that it's very expensive and people may graduate with a hundred thousand dollars in debt and not very good prospects of paying that off. It's not like you're a doc, a medical doctor. Um, and a lot of that education is stuff it's required by the curriculum, but at uh, the way they see it, much of it is sort of esoteric theory that's not necessarily applicable to what they're doing. So the way they see it, acupuncture is for ordinary people who have undergone sufficient training in useful techniques and can help people in a great deal of need using those sufficient techniques. So, gosh, I've got to spool back and think, where did I start with this question? What was the original question you asked me, Claire? Oh, um, what you want acupuncturists today to walk away from your book. Oh, right. Yeah. So I want them to walk away from my book, knowing that you can, if you have a a very strong social conscience, if you're, and I'm not meaning to say that people who practice another form of acupuncture don't, because I'd say, just about you know 90 percent of the people or more that I meet out there practicing acupuncture want to help others. But um, you know for the people who see that they want to also right these imbalances, these injustices of society while they're doing it, I want them to know that there is uh, historical precedent for that, and there is support for that, and there is a way to do that. And this may be touched on a little bit in acupuncture colleges because many of them have offsite clinics that the students will intern, do internships at, and those will typically be free clinics in more marginalized communities. Like, and it could be uh, for homeless populations or domestic shelters for women or people with HIV/AIDS or. Um, low income, older adults, in many different ways. And so they do get some exposure to that. But I don't know that the colleges necessarily emphasize that as this is something you could actually be doing for a living once you leave here, rather than what you should be doing is going out there and charging high prices to people who can afford it. So I I want people to know that there's another way to do this. And if that's your vision for acupuncture and the way you want to help people in the world, then then go for it and look for the support and learn the history and understand that it, it is all a part of North American acupuncture or I should say of acupuncture in Chinese medicine, because it's something that has many different forms around the world.
0: Well, in addition to being a a usable, a useful history, it's also just a fascinating story. I enjoyed reading it. Um, I have this brings me to our traditional final question here on the New Books Network, and that is, <laughs> what are
1: you working on next? Right, and I know to expect that question. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> have having asked it many times myself. Yeah. So what I'm working on right now is. Um, it's it's not a full book. It's a writing project. It will probably be a booklet. And it is a, another sort of history of something called TACO, the Third Avenue Charitable Organization, which is a, a nonprofit in San Diego, which is affiliated with a church, First Lutheran Church, and also has its own sort of little free clinic movement. They have a, a free medical care clinic, a free dental clinic, legal clinic, and also a free acupuncture clinic, which I was involved with, uh, over a course of years. And sadly, the acupuncture clinic is no longer because of COVID, uh, it just wasn't possible to keep it safe during COVID. And I, I don't know if it will open again, which would be really a, a very, very sad thing for me, but mainly, oh, uh, what I should say is all of these clinics, uh, that that acupuncture clinic was for low-income older adults but many of the other programs there in are the basically uh, taco was set up to help homeless populations and homeless folks and so the, and they still exist it, it hasn't ended at all its of course like everything it's gone through different different sort of uh, evolutions but it's just another example I think of how a community is reaching into itself to find ways to benefit others in their community. And and again, reaching out to those people who have the most need and the least resources and seeing what they can do. And and it's amazing when you see what can be done with really very small amounts of money, small amounts of infrastructure. It's very inspiring. And I it's actually nice to be involved in a project that's inspiring because so many of the things that we look at you want to critique society and so many things are wrong and not good and bad. And, um, you can just feel very negative a lot of the time. So even though these movements, you know, the revolutionary acupuncture was, didn't take over acupuncture. It wasn't a huge movement, not a huge movement. um, taco, not a large organization, but, but they have very real effects for real people within a space and time. So that's my current project. Well,
0: that's wonderful to hear, Rachel. Um, I want to thank you for taking time to to come on the other, sit on the other side of the microphone, the screen, and share your
1: work with us. Well, thanks so much, Claire. It's really been fun doing it from this angle. (laughs) (laughs) So I appreciate it.